What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. My mother didn't get to complete beyond five grades because the village she lived in, the school only went up to fifth grade and girls did not travel out of the village to study. But she was probably the greatest businesswoman I ever met. And and a lot of it was just through experience. And long time ago, when I was like eight or nine years old, she used to use this example that knowledge is like water. It only flows downhill. So if you want to take benefit from knowledge, you have to lower yourself to those with knowledge. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin, and you're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode Find a Mentor Who Challenges Your Ideas. If you've been listening to this show, you've probably noticed a common thread mentorship. The fact that it keeps coming up makes a lot of sense. How better to learn how to be a founder than by learning from another founder? This was no different for our guest this week. He's founder and CEO of Edible Arrangements, Tariq Farid. In part in honor of Father's Day, we talked to Tariq about his mentor, who became like a second father to him. We also talked about how his company is dealing with the pandemic and the challenges he's faced as a leader while using a franchise model for building and expanding edible arrangements. But first, we go all the way back to Tariq's childhood when he first discovered his love for entrepreneurship. We catch the bug to entrepreneurship from an entrepreneur, right? So when I was 13, um, I got a job at a flower shop, mostly just to stay out of the cold. And and there was a gentleman named Charlie Ferriselli who owned a flower shop in the neighborhood, used to deliver papers to him. Uh, and he gave us a job on a cold day. He felt bad, I think. And he said, hey, come on down. And, and uh, I got a job and started watching him in action. And it wasn't really for the money. It was more just watching this person run a business and that got me onto the journey of of you know getting that business buck you know always wanting to own a business so i was like 13 14 years old and wanted to own a business um and that was because of charlie that's great what was exciting to you about it you know i've always enjoyed um great seeing great customer service and I, you know i remember my first experience i was eight years old i went in pakistan my family's from pakistan i, I go to a, a, buy something with my mother and then this uh, business owner that mom, my mom used to buy clothes from uh, went to her. And first, you know, he kind of greets her. And and then he kind of tells her about the new things that are there. And as she's leaving, um, he, he he measures a little more. So my mother would buy, buy the fabric. She loved to sew. So he would always measure a little more. And as my, my mother was leaving, she would always give me examples of he's just such a great guy. And it's their business. My mother used to shop from him. I've shopped from him. And I just, I remember that experience. Uh, and when I met Charlie, Charlie was that way. You know, he would run out when a customer would come in, open the door for them, uh, and he would always get the product carried out. And people remember those little moments. And I enjoyed that. I, you know, I really enjoyed the experience of it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my mother used to say this uh, one saying, she used to say, never run after money. It runs really fast. Go do the right thing. It'll chase you. 
And I always felt that these people did the right thing and money always chased them. Money was always there. So Charlie always had money. He always did well. It's because he took care of the customers. He put a little extra love into everything that he did. And I just, I, I enjoyed that. I, I, I like that. And, and that just caught on. Yeah, because so much of what we do as consumers is based on how we feel, right? Like right. what that product or service makes you actually feel inside. And there's enough books about that. They say that, you know, it's not, you know, like what we what we try to create uh, in the beginning when we started, we always had issues where customers would say, how do I know it's December? How do I know that the cantaloupe is going to taste good? And we came up with this, hey, we have a wow guarantee. If the person who uh, gets it doesn't use the word wow, you call us, we'll give you your money back. Now, we didn't have many people call because we made sure that it's it's always great. And it was more how you made the person feel. They were either celebrating something or going through a difficult time. And at that time, if you could just go make that moment a little more magical, the customer's always going to remember you, the recipient's always going to remember you, and kind of tell other people about it. Now, before we get too much into the, the broader theories of what makes a company successful, tell me how you got started with Edible Arrangements. I know it was quite a journey from that flower shop initially to something that's sort of seen as a contrast to a flower yeah. arrangement today. So I, you know, we were in the flower business. I had, I started, I always loved uh, computers and uh, I ended up putting a POS system in uh, one of our flower shops uh, from a company out of Memphis called Daisy Systems. I liked it so much. I asked them, would you allow me in the Northeast to, you know, uh, put systems in other flower shops? So I got the rights to, you know, have these five or seven states and really enjoyed it. I, I went and visited many um, uh florist and you know uh, put in POS systems to those florists and one thing I realized that it, it's not you know what what made me successful wasn't just selling them technology what made me successful was that I understood the business I can tell them how to make it better how to make their life better how to balance it and all that other stuff um, and in the process um, I was on the road too much came back started two new flower shops and I had in my travels I had seen these fruit arrangements being done and I always thought that you know, with all the experience I had in the flower business, all the experience I had in technology, that the timing was right. This was 1997, 98. You started to hear about dot com. You started to hear the importance of technology and all these e-commerce things coming. Um, so we opened our first store, but then right away we opened, a, made a website, and then also made a wrote a, a POS system, and all those three things kind of converged in having a successful one shop that worked really well. And then we opened our second shop and then franchising was easy because we had the rails to run the business on. Uh, so the transition went full fledged into an IT company slash edible arrangements. And in the beginning, it was more of an IT company because I was leaning more on the technology where you could do so much more with an e-commerce platform than you could do, reach so many more customers. Um, so we started edible in 1990, uh, um, 1999 in March on the side of our flower shop. You know, it was a 2000 square foot flower shop, took 600 square feet and made a tiny little uh, edible arrangement store. And everybody thought it was going to fail. No one thought it was going to work because I had a successful, you know, there, I always say that my biggest failure has been success, that you get successful at something and you think either it won't fail or, you know, you, you, you won't have any issues or you get comfortable, you know, you don't reinvent. So at that time, everybody's like, hey, stick to your flower shop, stick to your IT. Who's going to buy fruit arrangements in baskets, cut fruit in baskets. Uh, but every time we sent it to a customer, they loved it. So we saw potential and, you know, just kept pushing it along. 
So do you see yourself as a, as a technical founder first or as a customer service kind of facing founder? I'm always customer service. I, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm not tech technology is a tool. I think what makes you successful is how you treat the customer and how you make the product. All the other things are tools. Your cash register is a tool. Your computer is a tool. All those things you have to treat, make, use as tools to make the customer experience better. Yeah, it strikes me. It's so interesting because today, you know, people say every business is a technology business. But but back then in the, in the mid to late 90s, you might not have said that exactly, but that's how you treated it. You know, you have built your rails, um, your technology, like right alongside the customer service and the product. That's right. Uh, you know, and, and when we, we had POS systems in our in our flower shops in 1986. So we were on technology at that. There were no websites, but technology back then was 800 numbers. And 800 numbers were the website, the internet of today. It went from catalogs to 800 numbers and people are calling you and um, and you know you're, there was no digital advertising, but things had changed. So uh, you know that, that 20 years of the 800 numbers being really big, you know, it's like what we have now uh, where we had, uh, uh, you, know, you would have some, eight, take an example of uh, flowers or catalogs or others. So there were 800 numbers that you called and we did the same thing at a smaller scale uh, so the technology was always there but it was a means to deliver better customer service and a better product and i think now it's the same thing you know how how convenient do you make it for a customer how how uh, fast do you make it for a customer and all those things and technology allows us to do all that yeah and how from the business side did you decide on the franchise model oh it's actually a funny story i um I didn't decide on the franchise model. So when I built my first store, um, I wanted to get a loan to build the set. So the first one was easy. You know, it cost you know uh, it cost thirty, forty thousand dollars to build it. We built it ourselves. I laid the floor myself. I you know installed everything myself. Uh, so that one was easy. Now we wanted to open. So. Um, we wanted to open a, a, a shop. So uh, somebody walked into our store in, in July uh, of 2000 and said, hey, I want to buy a franchise. And I, you know, I had worked at a franchise. I had worked at McDonald's. I worked at Burger King. I, I, I liked that part. Those are some of the best jobs I had. And I knew about franchising, but I never thought of franchising. We thought about just let's open another one. Let's figure out how to open another one. And so um, I actually, uh, in, back then, I tried to search for a consultant or someone to help me with franchising. And I got hold of someone on the phone. And this is where that mentorship comes in. I got hold of someone who's in Connecticut. And, you know, and I just laid it out. I said, look, somebody's asking me for franchising. He goes, how many stores do you own? I said, I own one store. He goes, I don't think you're ready. You need to go open one more as a franchise. You know, like, you know, write down the whole model. Do this whole thing. The best advice I ever got. And he did say, I'm too expensive. You know, you, know, you probably can't afford me. Uh, but I think you're on to something. I think you can figure this out. So uh, I went and built our second shop. But what happened there was when I went to build that shop, I went for a bank loan and I got denied because people looked at the concept and, and you know, we were doing maybe 120, 130,000. We had just started. And the first year from my first shop, I had, I did $190,000 in sales and I thought it was a home run. But of course, <laughs> banks are looking at profitability and all that other stuff. Um, so we couldn't get the loan. So I opened the sec, self-funded the second one too, you know, kind of got family and friends and um, built that store. But when we built it, this person kept watching this, you know, he was our first franchisee, Chris Delamarge here out of Boston. He kept kind of 
be, he was patient. He kept watching. And then June of um, 2001 is when we opened our first franchise location in Boston. And at that time, I had put together the FDD, the, the whole franchise agreement myself, the legal documents myself, because I didn't have any funding. But it was the best experience I had, that advice that gentleman gave me to, hey, just go do it, but do it like a franchise. And, and I am where I am because of franchising. Yeah, it's fascinating that investors didn't seem to believe in your idea at first. How long did that go on? Um, I think it went on for about four or five years because people saw it as a hobby, you know, and, and you know, a lot of times uh, the sophistication gets in the way, right? They don't, you know, you, you have something, you have a great product. So people really wouldn't look beyond the catalog, I used to call it. So you show them a catalog, they're like, oh, that's great. Oh, I'd love to send that to my wife or I'd love to send that to someone. And then the funding conversation wouldn't happen. How big are you? What are you thinking? So there, I think there were two issues that I didn't know at that time. One, I, I li always lived in reality. When somebody asked me, so I think the first time uh, I did, uh, Inc. actually did an interview on this, and it's, it's out there where they had four experts give an opinion on edible arrangements in 1999. Oh, wow. And, and all four said, we don't see much potential in it. You huh. know, so, so, or it gave me a score of five out of uh, 10. And, and rightfully, because when they asked me, how many stores do you think you'll have in uh, five years, I said 35 or 30 or 35 or 50. Um, and I said, well, you know, they said, why? I said, because I want to open perfect 35 locations. I, you know, I, for me, it's not the quantity, it's the quality. But I think what I should have done was, you know, kind of pitched really big. Like, I think this is a thousand locations and we want, you know, I was asking for $200,000. I should have been asking for 3 million, you know? So, but I was like, oh, let me open one. Let's make it a success. And that formula is what I've always used, even with our franchisees, not how many you own. It's the one you own. How successful is it? I think that's very, very important. That gets a lot of business. It gets everybody in trouble, right? You have one rental property and you decide to buy five. Like, you know, just, just be careful, you know, go at it slowly. Uh, and we're a company and, and, not that, and people don't recognize how amazing small business owners are. Small business owners make money. They don't sit there at the end of the year talk about, oh, well, I lost $3 million. And everybody's like giving them pats on the back for that, which is what happens in this, all these dot coms and everything that, you know, well, we lost $3 billion. It's like, oh, my God, let's buy the stock. This is great. Where we're not going to get any, no, we can't hire employees. We can't pay our rent if that's the case. So I think there's that magical power that small business owners do against all odds. You go figure it out. Um, and so I think for about three years, it went on where people didn't believe it. And we got to, and in those five years that I had said, we'll open 30, um, we opened 500. Wow. Because, because if you did the first four or five, yeah. right? It's as easy to replicate, you know, was that success begets success, you know, that, type of, you know, so it's uh, that, that you have the momentum and you're doing it right. And that's very, very important. I think that's what we got right. Yeah. So having bootstrapped the company from the beginning, do you have any advice for founders of today who I feel like uh, there's a kind of renewed interest in self-funding or bootstrapping, doing things the scrappy way rather than relying on outside venture capital, for, ex for example? Do you have any advice for those sorts of founders? Two things. Uh, you know, my 
I grew up around an environment where my grandfather, um, they lost everything. You know, they, they kind of, they, you know, they grew up in India, had their businesses. And when the partition split happened in India between Pakistan and India, they lost everything. You know, they, they, you know, they had to move and ended up in refugee camps. And then they remembered that, you know, they had all these moments that they had businesses they borrowed. So there was always this fear of borrowing. It was like, it was my, my grandfather used to always say, or my mother would always say, it's like a disease. You have to avoid debt. You have to avoid debt. You, you know, you, you have to pay things off um, because you owe money. So I think one thing is that easy money gets you in trouble. You know, I think when, a, when, a, when you bootstrap, it, it's magical how many things you can do you know, when you put your mind to it and when you have to figure things out. And I think if you could just go, sometimes you buy things you don't really need. There is this life cycle of a small business that is very important that you walk through. You know, if it's easy and you got everything, uh, sometimes people will start getting things early. And we saw this even in our franchises that people would buy things early that they really didn't need. So um, one, avoid, avoid, I don't want to say avoid debt, avoid too much money or avoid money you really don't need and try that mad, try the hard part first, that can I do this? So, uh, you know, I, I would go to landlords and um, make deals with them, say, I'm sorry, I don't have a security deposit. I'm going to give you this much, but I'll, every month I'll give you your security deposit, you know, and, uh, and you know, if I didn't ask, they wouldn't make those deals. And a lot of times those deals got made. And in times like this, those deals are there. You know, they're usually difficult when the economy is good. Um, so one, try to do as much as you can with as little as you can, because the magic of, of, of uh, small businesses, you have to make $10 with $1. So what you don't want to do is start out with 20 and only make 10, you know, where now you have debt and you didn't try that part of bootstrapping it. That's one. And, you know, second, believe in yourself more than believing in everyone else. You know, and when I went through that moment of trying to borrow money from everyone, I actually had put together this great presentation. I'd go put on a tie. I'd go to the banks. I'd sit and kind of make my pitches. And at the end of it, very nicely, you know, they would say, you know, it doesn't, it didn't make sense to them because they wanted to see numbers. And I was mostly talking about building a business and the experience and what I'm going to do. I wasn't focused on results. I wanted to kind of reinvest the money. So I think with that, Believing in yourself and having a little bit of a superpower goes a long way when you're starting a business. Um, so I, I think uh, those two things have always helped me where even when we reinvent or when we go to buy back the company, uh, you know, against all odds, you're able to surprise yourself at the end. Absolutely. So tell me about that early time period of the company going from one to 500 locations so quickly within just a few years. I imagine there were moments where it felt a little bit like growing so fast. It was outside of your, everything was outside of your grasp. You know, you couldn't, could no longer touch every aspect of the business. What was that like? And what was the biggest challenge you went through in those early years? I think the biggest, the biggest challenge would be just transforming. You know, I think at times, at least for me, the struggle was that I wanted to touch every store. I wanted to go visit every store, but there's a price you pay for that. And the price usually is paid, you know, with your family, not getting your time, you know? So I, I had this where somebody would call me, I'd get on a plane and be there the next day. Um, so I think that fine balance, if, if I look back, I didn't need to, and especially now with technology, you know, we were lucky that we leveraged technology from the beginning that we stayed very connected. Um, so I, I think that transformation, 
more than anything, I think letting go, knowing that you have the right person there who's going to take care of it. Um, that I learned a long time ago. The reason I got into the businesses I got into that many of the clients I had, if I would go own a, a, a visit a small business owner, there would be a trust factor. They, they, they would be sitting at the counter and they had to ring every sale. They had to be in the store all the time because they feared that somebody would, um, you know, not service the customer properly, you know, steal or whatever. And I would always use the example. And back then uh, there was the stores, Bradley's and Caldor's and Walmart. And I would say, hey, there's no Mr. Walmart in every Walmart. So you got to learn to let go a little bit. You have this amazing brand, be it a flower shop that the person runs amazing and has great customer service. You should replicate this, build it into a, a, a dynasty, build it into chains and all these things. Look what the Burger Kings did. So I learned that a long time ago that you have to kind of let, let go and you have to trust a little bit. Um, and a little bit in the beginning because there's so much you know that you have to transfer to, in the, in, uh, to people. Um, so just that challenge of that transformation, reinventing yourself every few years was probably the biggest challenge. You know, learning about marketing, national marketing, learning about, about uh, uh, you know, uh, some legal uh, issues that you had never thought about. But, you know, that's the part that you should be spending your energy on. And I always say that you have to stay five years ahead of where your brand is. And, and you can't do that if you stay today. Sure. How can one learn to, to transfer that information, as you say, and then let go and trust? How do you learn to do that? And how did you come to that process? So there's, there's really only two ways. One, you have a great system that you've put in place that whoever comes into that system for the time they're there, they're going to adhere to that system. So some companies do that, some individuals do that, and they do a really good job. For me, um, you know, the, the, because you're transforming the brand so much or you're always changing, you'd surround yourself with five or six very trustworthy people, you know, and, and you know, I, I think the, the word loyalty gets, you know, misused or something uh, at times, but that part, they're not loyal to you, but they're loyal to the brand. Why they have to be loyal to the brand is that they sometimes need to fight you because you want to do something that is actually working. They're like, hey, no, 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 we're not going to touch that. So you bring in the right marketing person. You bring in the right operations person. You bring in the right, right finance person. So now when you tell them, all right, we're going to go build three more stores, that finance person, it's his company. He feels like it's her or his company and they want to protect it. They're fighting. You say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do three. We'll do one. So I think surrounding yourself with the right people is very, very important. And that's where... I was just very, very lucky that I have some people working with me, you know, 25 years now that will challenge me. And, and, and when there's a great idea, they get excited and because they see that this brand is going to grow, you know, and the, the and the, you know, so I think, and either great, create a great system with a great manual, but the problem with the great manuals is world is moving so fast that you're going to not have chapters in it to talk about what to do when certain things come up where, but having great people that know how to pivot quickly and kind of respond quickly is probably the, that's what made me successful. And I've seen both, either one of those uh, will work. People always work better. When we come back, I'll talk with Tariq about leadership challenges, but first a quick break.
You're growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So Tariq, your growth over the years landed you in the pages of Inc. Magazine multiple times. You were on the Inc. 500, 5,000 multiple times. And I also read a story um, in 2011 about a lawsuit. Um, you had some $200 million in revenue by this time um, when 170 franchisees sued you in federal court mm -hmm. over like uh, implementing a new system-wide mandate, I believe. Um, tell me about that time period and what happened you mentioned there were you know the growth led to some legal challenges along the way i assume this is one of the things you meant definitely uh the look a franchise company um you know I, i've always i've struggled for a long time as into how to define a franchise relationship and i usually avoid using the word family because you know families you never give up on or you never quit a family you know you you you're always there and i think a a franchise company is like a team it's like a and and two types of teams it's either it's a team who's just from performing or it's a high performance team and and when you're a high performance team you're going to do a lot of uh, creative things and when you see opportunity you're going to chase after that opportunity and not everybody on the team is aligned with where the coach or, you know, and my role is a coach. My role is to kind of set where we're going, how the ball is going to be thrown, what are we going to do? And of course, uh, a lot of, some of the team members may not agree. And that's all part of it. And, and so what happened at that time was that we had put together a lot of initiatives. It was, it, we were 10 years into our brand and it was time to reinvent. And we launched a lot of initiatives uh, and, and they, were, they were scary. And, and you know, I learned from a mentor a long time ago that if the change you're proposing doesn't scare the people in the room, then it's not really a change. You know, so come in and announce something. And Fred DeLuca talked about he walked in one day to the office and they had 700 restaurants and they said, we're going to build 5,000. And everybody thought Fred lost it. You know, so I kind of I went in and said, I think we can do the following things and we need to reinvent. And, and we did so. And in the process, we had uh, out of, uh, let's say, 600 some odd franchisees, we had a certain number of stores that filed a lawsuit saying in stopping some of those initiatives and saying that we're going too far. But, you know, that that lawsuit got settled. Uh, those were our best years and our highest growth ever. And this happened It mostly happened in 2008 when we saw a crisis. Uh, the thinking was we need to ride this out and everything in uh, you know all the experience i had was you don't ride crises out you fight crises you get ahead of them you you do things uh you do you know you kind of buck the trend you know whatever you want to call it. so we're going to get aggressive during this time why because tv advertising is possible now because we can afford it you know there less people are advertising we we need to do better promotions we need to be open longer we need to do much more to not only retain but to grow and I got challenged on that. L lucky for me, it worked really well. Our sales shot up 
you know, uh, uh, 20, 30%. Our business did well. It was some of our best years. And most of those things settled. I am not, you know, I'm not afraid of people challenging me. I've never been afraid of lawsuits that, that you can't define. Now, as long as you're not doing anything wrong, as long as you're being fair, as long as you're being professional, uh, you explain, you do all that. But at the same time, you're going to get that risk. You know, when every time our driver goes out to delivery, there's a risk that the car may get into an accident. We don't stop doing deliveries. So there is always a risk in business as you're growing, especially when you're, uh, you know, growing uh, uh, at, at, you know, want to grow at the leaps and bounds and you see opportunities, there is going to be that risk. Um, and we knew of it. And, uh, you know, and luckily we got through it. And at the end of it, the whole system was better. Great. How did you work with the franchisees after that point? Was was regaining trust difficult or what was this kind of strategy you had to use to communicate after that point? So this whole team concept that I'm talking about, you know, it, it, the, the franchise relationship is always a challenged relationship. The reason being you have two entrepreneurs. You have an entrepreneur who started the concept and especially if they're running the concept or there's a group of an executive team that's kind of setting the direction of the brand. They, they're looking where we need to be two to three years from now. And then there's a franchisee who is again an entrepreneur. And what makes a franchise successful is that you have these two people, as long as they're somewhat aligned, and I haven't figured out the percentage yet. Do they need to be 55% aligned, 85% aligned? Somewhere there is, you know, that they're aligned, that, you know, we have to do this. The challenge ends up being on the, on the how. There's always a disconnect on the how. But you will do dumb stuff. If you do 10 good things, you're going to do one or two things. Just own up to them and talk about them and, and learn from them. You know, I, I just uh, heard something a little while back. So, but there's, you know, I, I, I have never failed. I've only succeeded or learned, right? So, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from those and you don't let them happen again, but the world keeps changing and we need to keep changing with it. So the one thing is change is the hardest part. And everybody, every time you say we need to change, there's a certain time, a certain amount of people that actually don't like that. They, they want to stay with the, the kind of the way things were. So with that, you're always going to risk a little bit of a frayed relationship. But overall, if the brand is doing good, the trust and the confidence are always there that we're headed in the right direction. As you say, um, learning is a huge part of running a business. Um, 20 years in now, what would you say is the most significant period of, of you know, learning that you've been through? When I've been in the shadows of others, you know, so, um, you know, my mother didn't get to complete beyond five grades because the village she lived in, the school only went up to fifth grade and girls did not travel out of the village to study but she was probably the greatest businesswoman I ever met. And, and a lot of it was just through experience. And long time ago, when I was like eight or nine years old, she used to use this example that knowledge is like water. It only flows downhill. So if you want to take benefit from, from knowledge, you have to lower yourself to those with knowledge. You know, go sit in their shadows. Go, go chase them down. Go. So some of the greatest things for me was that um, I would be in awe. I'm, you know, grew up in Connecticut. I was in awe of what Subway was doing, and I always looked from a distance. So when I started my franchise, I wanted to spend a little time with Fred and learn. And you know, one everybody told me, even the security guard at at uh, you know when I went there for delivery once and said, you know, I'm, I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm 20 something. And I'm like, is there a way to get, you know, does Mr. DeLuca do any meetings? Is there a way to get hold of Mr. DeLuca? He's like, oh, you mean Mr. DeLuca's not even here. You can't, you know, you, you can't talk to Mr. DeLuca. So, Wait, so you just walked into a random subway and asked for Fred DeLuca? To, to, to the head, headquarters. Headquarters. So I, okay, there you go. So there, there was actually, there was a delivery to the headquarters. And in doing the delivery, I pull up to the gate and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in our delivery van and I say, hey, is there a way of, does Mr. DeLuca, you know, how, how can you get uh, time with Mr. DeLuca? And of course, I mean, the, the, the guy said, no, no, unless you have an appointment, you can't. And, and you know, uh, stand to one side. I got other people to look at because I was, I was doing a delivery. Um, so I started my journey of that I need to be under the shadow of someone. I want to learn. You know, the, he, he's done this for 20 years and he could probably teach me a lot that I don't have to make those mistakes and everything. So it about, about, took about a year and a half and finally he met with me. So I would say that the transformational moments for me was that. And it's no different than when we, as a, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, somebody playing sports sees their idol, you know, you know like LeBron James talks about, uh, you know, uh, Michael Jordan and others. And in business, there are those people that we look up to that we read about, or they're in our neighborhood. So I would say the two transformational people for me was Charlie Ferriselli when I, when I saw him in action in a small little flower shop in West Haven, Connecticut, and the time and the ideas that Fred DeLuca, and it would, you know, the sessions would go something like this, where I would be talking to Fred and I say, I'm thinking about doing this. And he would say, mm, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, and I'm like, and, and first, I would kind of be shocked, like, why not? But then when I would think about it, I'm like, yeah, he's right. It's not a good idea. But he made you think. And then he would say, well, call so-and-so or try it this way. And uh, so I, I think I always went prepared to those meetings. So that was really the transformational moments for me to think big. Because this person who owns 30,000 units of Subway is telling me you're on to something and you're going to do great. Just imagine the confidence that gives you. What's one thing in specific that you learned from Fred DeLuca? Oh, I, I learned so many things. But, uh, you know, I, I think um, one of the most important things was the, the this part about believing in yourself. So sometimes I would ask him an idea and I would want him to validate an idea for me. And he would say something like, I don't know much about that. Tell me more. Tell me about what you think. And, and I always said, they're going, well, I, I think it's going to be great. And he would say, well, if you think it's going to be great, let's make it great. Then it's going to be great. Um, so it was more believe in yourself. If anything, believe in yourself. There aren't experts out there that can answer your questions. You have to answer your own questions. They can maybe help you with some part of that question. Like, hey, how do I, how do I take care of the legal part of this? How do I do this? But you're going to make it a reality. So you have to believe in it and don't take my idea and try to apply it. So a lot of times there was always that, um, I don't know much about this, but you may want to try it this way or do that. And he never gave me specific advice about what to do in my brand, but he always kind of shared like that some, you know, uh, he always shared ideas of, let's say I was thinking about opening a location, you know, try so-and-so. And this is how you need to think about a neighborhood where you open the location and everything, you know, think about traffic, think about all the, all these things that I didn't know about yet, but he helped me avoid those. Um, so any one of those, and any, any of those things where, you know, like push back a little bit. Uh, and I always tell people, I, my kids, you know, my daughter has mentors that she calls, and I always tell them that, the, you know, the mentor, a great mentor is the one who pushes back. 
who says, no, I disagree. I don't think that's going to work. And then you have to prove it. Say, well, you know, I think maybe there's a misunderstanding. Here's what I'm thinking. And it takes a little while. So Fred, it was always more that direction part uh, and making me rethink what I was doing to only make it better. What changes in the business have you had to make during this global pandemic that's going on now? Um, I, I read that the company has actually seen an increase in business. And I'm curious how that how that happened during all sorts of different, you know, changing local regulations that your shops have had to deal with. Um, how, how has that gone? Um, you know, look, I, I think uh, there, there are two categories of businesses, right? We, we were part of part of this is, I guess, luck, if you want to call it luck being that we were doing some things that we became essential and we remained open, you know? So I, I feel for a lot of these small business owners who had to shut down and will have to restart. I, I can't even imagine, you know, it, it's so difficult. It is so difficult to start a business. And I've always said it's harder to restart a business. So one thing, you know, that I would have to give a lot of credit to is it, it's really the team. You know, I got blessed that we had transitioned from um, Connecticut to Atlanta. We had a whole new team with a whole new approach. And we had five, six months of really good performance under our belt that when this pandemic came, the team wasn't thinking, you know, a lot of people have to start thinking about how to survive. The team was thinking about how to thrive. And I think it's just really mindset that, and thrive may just meaning that psychologically, we have to stabilize right now to get through this because we have no choice to get through this. Second, we don't have a, you know, I don't have another choice. This is what I do and I have to make it work. Um, so then all those ideas started about what can we do? And, you know, the first pivot was we need to start delivering whole fruit to people's homes. If they're getting delivery, we need to kind of go into this grocery business. That led to us being you know, in some areas essential to say, hey, you're delivering fruit and, and, and produce to people. We started delivering, we had never, you know, carrots and potatoes and we started doing whatever we need to do. One, because we needed to and we had the fleet and the stores and all that and we had the whole supply chain, I mean, supply chain and the cold chain. Um, but that, those customers then started calling back and saying, oh, I, I got fruit from you. Somebody sent me oranges and apples. Are you guys still open? Like, yes, we're open. Oh, I was thinking about so-and-so is uh, not feeling well. And we realized we, we were essential more because people weren't, couldn't connect with each other physically, so they needed to send something. And we were there ascending. So the business, you know, at that point, as we started to go promote and all that, you know, our business just took off at that point. But this was brave drivers, brave franchisees, brave customer service people, you know, the, the staff in our offices that stayed here, making sure everything runs, everybody working harder than ever. I saw our team work longer hours and harder than ever being home. They were on all the time and all that, all, all that, the team coming together, all that happening resulted in us having some, you know, some of our best months, best Valentine's Day ever, best Mother's Day ever. Huh. I mean, in our 20 years history, our best Valentine's, uh, Mother's Day was in the middle of a pandemic. Wow. Because That's there are so many mothers that have to be thanked, right? Yes. And so many who are far away that you couldn't necessarily make brunch for, right? That's it. That's it. Yes. That's it. And we're, we're honored that we were there to be able to do that. You know, yeah. So it was great. Yeah. You know, other 
global events over the last couple of weeks made me made me think of um, some things that you've said in the more in the recent future. Um, you know, as an immigrant entrepreneur yourself, you've been vocal about the challenges that immigrant entrepreneurs face these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, um, you know, what do you think that this current Black Lives Matter movement is going to have an effect on entrepreneurs or entrepreneurship amongst different communities um, than it has in the past? And how can current business owners work to forward that? The question isn't, will it? The, the thing is, it has to. Yeah. It has to. We, we have to change. And, you know, look, uh, I've gone through, you know, some of the biggest crises I've gone through. The, for me, the biggest crisis for me was the Newtown shooting, you know, in Connecticut. Yeah. You know, uh, I had kids in, you know, first grade and kindergarten. Oh. I, I can't even imagine what those parents went through, what those mothers went through. And, you know, things went on. And after a little while, everybody went back to their normal life. Right. And and we we put that behind us. And and I we, we grieved. I mean, we, we thought about, you know, my my wife was all worried about the kids and how it happens. What are the schools doing? And, you know, as an immigrant, I owe a lot to the, the the you know the African American community here because they um, they you know th- that whole civil rights movement they didn't say hey just take care of only the Black Americans they said no 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 any minority has to be given their rights all that stuff so they, they you know they 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 did it for a lot of so a lot of the things that I enjoy was the sacrifices of those communities because this discrimination is not only in America this discrimination discrimination happens in Pakistan this discrimination happens all over the world we've just learned and built this amazing society that's gone beyond that we've transitioned beyond it where other countries are still stuck in it other societies are still stuck in it we just don't want to go backwards and the other thing is, at one point, we have to recognize that a certain group of us has suffered long enough, that, hey, enough is enough, and, and, and we have to help. So we have promised ourselves that we're going to do our part to not only be thankful for all the sacrifices that they've done, but in, in, in return, support show action, make changes within our environment, make changes with people around us. So I, you know, I, I, I am so hopeful uh, and um, thankful for all the things that businesses are doing and businesses that I had never thought of talking about this before are talking about it. They're making changes, um, you know, because they realize that, you know, a healthy society is healthy business, right? It, it's better for business. And when you take care of every citizen, all those are your consumers. So, you, you know, we have this great tradition that was you know, given to us. We don't want to go backwards and we're supposed to leave it better. That's the great American tradition, like make it better for the next generation. I was just watching something on uh, how China progressed in the last 50 years. Everything they did economically, they were trying to mimic America. They wanted to be like America. And so I think with that, we have to continue this, not only financially, but more important socially. That is critical, you know, because the financial part gets taken care of if you take care of your people. Well, Tariq Farid, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Christine. Really appreciate it. After speaking with Tariq, it's clear that he's the kind of leader who has faced some massive challenges and who isn't afraid to answer the tough questions from his colleagues and partners. But when he was starting out, he knew what he didn't know and spent a lot of energy finding mentors who could advise him and do so with a critical eye. 
challenging his assumptions and his pre-existing ideas. Tariq says today that he welcomes the most challenging of questions and follows up on them by striving to do the right thing. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could recommend us to a friend or help recommend us to a lot more people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your thoughts really do help other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Let us know your pointers for taking criticism. Also, who would you like to hear me interview next? Our producer, who is eating a pineapple carved into a sunflower, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.